Genesis chapter 21. We're continuing our study of the book of Genesis. And uh, now we have come to a very significant point in redemptive history. God has promised, if you remember. He, well, let's back up a little further than that, actually. God promised at the fall that he would crush the head of the serpent or bruise or strike the head of the serpent by what? By the seed of a woman. Right? So it would be through humans. So specifically, a human, humankind, that God was going to act and defeat the serpent, defeat sin and death. Genesis 12, that promise begins to narrow on a family, Abraham's family, Abraham's offspring. And God promised to Abraham in Genesis 12 that through him, all the nations of the earth would be, would be blessed. It would be specifically through this family, Abraham's family, through whom God would bless all the nations of the earth. Fast forward a few thousand years later, you have Christ, culminating in Christ, opening up into the church. So that, that's the big picture there. But here we are in chapter 21. And I want to read this text because it is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that he would have a son, even though he is 100 years old and Sarah in her 90s, that he would have a promised child through whom God would carry out his redemptive plan throughout history. So let's read this passage, Genesis 21, 1 through 21, together. Now the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the, na the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of the slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a great nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning, 
took bread and skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder, along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water and the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite of him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot, for she said, Let me not look on the death of a child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast in your hand, for I will make a great nation out of him. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. What we have here is the tale of two sons. In this passage, the child that God had promised Abraham is finally born, Isaac. It was going to be through Isaac that God is going to carry out his plan for redemptive history. That phrase, I know I use that a lot, redemptive history, redeem. What I mean by that, redemptive, to redeem something means to buy back out of slavery. But redemptive history is a term that refers to God's action in history to restore his creation back to what he originally intended. That's what I mean by redemptive history. All right, so it's his... It's the history of God redeeming back creation and the people with it. So, Isaac is going to continue the line of Abraham. And that is the line through whom God would carry out redemptive history. Ishmael is the second child. And he is not going to be part of God's redemptive plan. Even though he is blessed... And God does make a great nation out of him. God says, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So when you hear the phrase Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that's the line. Joseph. So there's a specific line that God is going to work through. And it's not through Ishmael, it's through Isaac. What we're going to do today is just an exercise in biblical theology. And I want you to see that God makes a distinction between the natural offspring of Abraham and the spiritual offspring of Abraham. He makes a distinction between those born of the flesh with those born according to the promise. A distinction between those born of nature and those born of the spirit. There is a distinction between the natural and the spiritual. And this, in this passage, we see that. So what I'd like to do is first talk about Isaac. God bringing about his plan, his promise to make, to give Abraham a son named Isaac. 
Now, first of all, I want to ask you how God chooses to bring about this promise. I want to explore how God chooses to bring about this promise. First, I want you to notice that he brings out the promise by intervening in history. In verse 1, it says, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. So what I see here is God opening the womb of a 90-year, 95-year-old woman. He opens her room, and it's always according to God's word. As God had said, as God had spoken. One commentator says, This repetition expresses the quiet precision of God's control in history. There was a lot of there were a lot of things going on which jeopardized the promise from Genesis 12 till now. Abraham keeps giving Sarah away to kings and um, jeopardizing the promise. But God was in control through the whole process. And every time Abraham did that, God would sort it out. And now, through a quiet precision of his control, he brings about exactly what he has spoken so God brings about his word as he had said. So, first of all, God brings about his promise by intervening in human history according to his word. Second, note also that God has fulfilled his promise by bringing about what is biologically impossible. Turn with me to verse, uh, chapter 18, verse 13. In chapter 18, verse 13, when the Lord promised... Sarah, that she was going to have a son. Well, first he says to Abraham, the Lord said, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? See, we're not dealing with just how the universe works. When we look at Scripture, we're dealing with God's intervention within history to bring about certain ends that he intends. And that's exactly what we have here. And here's the answer to the question. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. And so God brings about what is biologically impossible. And that shows me God's mode of operation. His mode of operation is to bring about a thing that is not possible for humans to bring about. major epochs in redemptive history is exactly this. God doing something miraculous. And that, that, that word has so many connotations today. But really it just means something that would not have happened if it were not for divine intervention. So think about the Exodus. Usually, usually, the waters of a sea do not separate and stand up in a column. That usually does not happen. Usually, virgins don't give birth to a baby boy. Usually, people don't rise from the dead. You see, God uses, or chooses to work in situations that are biologically and naturally impossible. So we're dealing with a God of the impossible. 
He does what is impossible. And faith, preached about this a few months ago, faith reaches towards what is impossible. Remember, God, or Jesus, was he was going to heal. I forget this, who it was exactly. The blind man, I think. Oh, the man's daughter. And he says to Jesus, Lord, if you can, you can heal my daughter. And Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible through faith for those who believe. That doesn't mean every time we believe something, it's going to happen. It means that if we believe something that God wills and trust that and cling to it, God is pleased to act through that. So faith opens up the door of the impossible because it reaches to God's power. That's just a side note. But things usually happen. The, God, the way God has chosen to move redemptive history along is by doing that which is impossible. And that's... Listen, God has used the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Right? And so if this sounds foolish in the eyes of the world, so it is. It is foolish because these things do not just happen if we look scientifically at the world by observation. These things can only take place if there is a God intervening in history. I read a book uh, recently by Soren Kierkegaard, and he talks about this similar thing. And he talks about a Christian man or woman. The greatness of a Christian man or woman is by trusting the impossible. He says, They shall all be remembered. But everyone becomes great in proportion to his expectancy. One became great through expecting the possible. Another by expecting the eternal. But he who became, but he who expected the impossible became greater than them all. I resound with that. Because there are some men who just expect what is possible in the world, what is natural. They see how the world works and figure that's the only way things work. And there have been great scientists of the past who have operated that way. Some expect what is eternal. Ah, maybe there's an afterlife or something out there. You know, I, I hope, you know, I hope that there's some kind of existence. But then there are those who expect the impossible. There are those who trust in virgins giving birth to baby boys. There are those who expect and trust in a man rising from the dead and walking out of a tomb. And there are those who expect and believe that the body of a Christian lying in a casket is not the whole story at that moment. Because to be absent with the body is to be present somewhere else. To be at home with the Lord. And we expect that one day he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. So, men, the world can go on expecting the possible. I'm going to go on expecting the impossible. I'm going to go on expecting things that could only happen if there is a God who does the impossible. Now, that's point number one, that God chooses to act through the impossible by 
chooses to produce what is impossible and that according to his word. Secondly, I want you to notice something about his promises, the way God chooses to bring about his promises. As I read the Bible and in my own experience, the Lord brings about his promises, but he does so slowly in the fullness of time. Read with me verse 5 through 8. And verse 5, and they, oh, that's the wrong chapter. Verse 5. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Usually, a long period of time takes place between the promise given and the promise fulfilled with God. Abraham was a hundred years old at this time, and he was promised a child when he was 75 years old. That's a 25-year-old gap between the promise given and the promise fulfilled. I don't know if I've waited 25 years for anything. 25 years is a long time. And there is great struggle. Don't forget, it wasn't just a promise. It was a promise with a command. Go from your house and from your family. And go to the land that I'm going to show you. And there's great doubt in these 25 years that takes place. We've seen Abraham give up his wife twice to foreign kings and struggle. We've seen ups and downs in Abraham. Struggle in faith. Victorious in faith. One day he's destroying armies by God's power and interceding, trusting in the Lord. The next day he's operating through the fear of man alone, pretending to be the brother of Sarah so he doesn't get killed by surrounding armies, so he thought. So God takes a long time and he expects his people to be faithful during those times. He fulfills his promises slowly but he expects obedience. And at the end of the promise, there is always great joy. Because God has given Sarah laughter and joy. She says, uh, verse 6, it says, God has made laughter for me. And everyone who hears will laugh over me. Just a, now, just an exegetical note here. The ESV has the word laugh over me. Um, and it makes it sound like Sarah's going to be a laughing stock. Like everyone's going to laugh at me because I'm an old woman having a child. That's not the idea. Um, the Hebrew preposition, which the ESV transfers, o, uh, translates as over, really could be translated as over, but it also means to or for or regarding or with. And so most translations say that everyone will laugh with me. So in other words, they will join her in laughter rather than laugh at her. So I just wanted to clear that up because when I first read that, I was like, well, so are people going to laugh at her or laugh with her? So it seems to be everyone's going, she expects everyone to laugh with her and join her in joy because don't forget for a woman to have a son in ancient times was a blessed, blessed thing. And it was a source of pride almost. So, 
And isn't it interesting that Sarah's laugh of doubt has turned into a laugh of joy? God turns laughters of doubts into laughters of joy when he brings about his promises. And yes, it took 25 years to fulfill that, but it did come about. And that, that's why I, I'm meditating on the word hope so much in the past year, because hope, that's what we have. Hope, as I've said before, is the anticipation of joy in the future. Anxiety is the anticipation of dread. Hope is the anticipation of joy. That's uh, Moltmann who coined that phrase, and I think it's so true. As Christians, we're a hopeful, joyful people. We look forward to an end that God is going to bring about. There's a goal. There is a stream that makes glad the cities of God. There is a river that does not run dry. There is a new creation. There is a resurrection of the body. There is a place where no tear will exist, where every tear will be wiped away. There is a thing. There is a, there is a realm of existence where all things are made new. There is feasting in a heavenly kingdom. There is an entrance into a great banquet hall of God's glory. There is glory. There is rejoicing. Hope is what clings on to that. And Paul says, hope does not make us ashamed. Hope does not make us ashamed. So, the reason we need hope is because we live in between the times of the promise given and the promise fulfilled. And we can go through life hopeful or sorrowful. Let's go through life hopeful based on God's promise. And the scripture is here to show us that God does bring about his promises. He does eventually bring about his promises, though it be a long time. But in the midst of that time, have hope. Um, in Galatians 4, so this, this promised destruction of the serpent did come about at the cross. And Paul says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. This only happened when the fullness of, God, of time had come. Why did God choose to do it this way? Why does he choose to carry out his promises over long periods of time? I don't know. The secret things belong to the Lord. But I know there is a fullness of time. And it shall come. Just like Christ came eventually and just crushed the head of the serpent. You know, Peter talked about the second coming of Christ because that's what we're looking for. And he says, don't overlook this. Don't overlook this fact, brothers, that one day with the Lord is like a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some men count slowness, but he's patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So God does have reasons as well. It's not, it's not always inscrutable. You know what Jesus said? He said, when this gospel is preached throughout the end of the world as a testimony to all nations, then the end will come. That's when the end will come. It hasn't, and that's why the end hasn't come yet. 
Peter also talks about hastening the day of the Lord through holiness. I almost don't know what that means, but I know that the holiness of God's church somehow will hasten the day of the Lord as he sees them shine brighter and brighter in a lost and dying world. So, what, what I learn from Isaac is that God does bring about his impossible promises according to his word. And I also see that he brings about those promises over long periods of time. And he requires his children to be patient, to persevere, and to do so in faith and in hope. Now, Ishmael. Let's turn our attention to Ishmael. Ishmael is not the heir. Isaac is the heir. He is the one he is the one that would continue the line that God would work his fulfillment of redemptive history in. So in verse 9 we read, oh, verse 8, So when, when Isaac was weaned, Abraham threw a great feast on the day he was weaned. And don't forget, Abraham has lots of people. He has maidservants and and male servants. He has families under him. So this is a great feast, probably. And at the feast, in verse 9, we read that the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, was laughing at Isaac. And so, Sarah says to Abram, cast out the slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son. And this was very displeasing to Abraham because he loved Ishmael at this point. Ishmael is a teenager at this point, a young teenager. And he's grew up with, he grew up with him. But God said to Abraham, Do not be displeased because of the boy and because of the slave woman. Whatever Sarah says, do as she tells you. Because it's through Isaac, that your offspring will be named. Now, even though Ishmael is already born, God is insistent that his promise to carry on Abraham's seed is through the child that he promised, not, not Ishmael. Don't forget, Ishmael was brought about because Sarah was frustrated in chapter 16. She said, I'm not having a child. Go into Hagar and have a child through her. And I'll have a child through her and that'll be the promised child. This was not the Lord's will. And this is an example of a child being born according to the flesh. And when God reiterates his promise to Abraham to bring about a child, Abraham actually, um, he actually rebuts God and said, no, let, let Ishmael be the one. I love Ishmael. Read with me in 1717. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to him, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? This is a year before Isaac is born. Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. I love Ishmael. He, he's, he is my child. You know, maybe he, he, not the way we originally thought, but he's a, he's a good lad. He's growing up. 
Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Verse 19, God said no. But Sarah, your wife, shall be your son, shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring, for his offspring after him. Ishmael, I'll make a great I've heard you, he says, and I will make a great nation out of him. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac. So do you see what's happening here? Ishmael, though beloved by Abraham, is not the promised child. I want you to let this sink in for just a moment, because this is going to help you understand the Bible. He was a child born according to the flesh, not the promise. He was a child born of nature, but not of spirit. There is a distinction between the natural and the spiritual here. With that said, verse 9, But Sarah saw Hagar, saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. The word laughing there means more than just laughter. It's not, he wasn't just making fun. It seems it's more than just laughing at Isaac. When Potiphar's wife, do you remember in Potiphar, Potiphar who, who wanted to sleep with Joseph and who tempts him a number of times? Um, eventually she gets frustrated and accuses Joseph of trying to rape her. When Potiphar's wife accuses Joseph of attempting to rape her, she says this in 39.17. The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to laugh at me. There's that same word, to laugh at. So the word laugh in Genesis, in Hebrew, can mean laughing, but it has a broader um, connotation than that. It can have something, can mean something sinister. It can even mean intending to do harm, too. So maybe something is more that is going on here than just laughing at. Um, and Paul, in Galatians 4.29, says that Ishmael was persecuting Isaac. And that's, we don't have more details about that, but that's the situation. And so Sarah demands that Hagar and Ishmael be cast out. Remove them from the tribe. Send them to the desert. They will, Ishmael will not be heir with my son. Now, at first, this seems petulant. This seems like a, a mom who just is overprotective and who needs to bring it down a few notches. Um, but it is actually commensurate with God's will. Matthew Henry notes that Sarah's words seem to be spoken in some heat. Yet, um, it is as if she is speaking it through the spirit of prophecy. Because in verse 12, God says, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of the slave woman. For whatever Sarah says to you, do. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now that seems harsh. It seems harsh for God to say, yes, cast out Hagar 
with her young teenage boy into the desert alone. But God does promise in verse 13, I will make a great nation out of the slave woman because he is your offspring. He's not going to continue the covenant. He's not the promised child, but I will take care of him. I've heard your prayer. Um, what we see here is a redemptive principle that God's people had to lean into after Christ came. Because now that Christ came, now that the promised child came, God's people must cast out the slave woman and her son, Paul says. Turn with me to Galatians 4. Galatians 4, 21-31. Galatians 4, 21-31. There is a difference between the promise and that which was only temporary. The old covenant law with its system was only temporary. Once the promises come, it is no longer needed. You can walk by the light of the moon, but once the sun is risen, you don't need the moon anymore. Verse 21, chapter 4, Galatians. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written, Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born according to the promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. That is, Hagar represents the old covenant law that Moses gave. But the Jerusalem above, that which comes from God, is free. And she is our real mother. Now stick with me, because I know Paul is being very Jewish about all this. He's explaining this in a very Jewish Hebrew way. But he's making a very important point. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one, who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud. You who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. I want to stop there. You are like Isaac, are children of the promise. There is this distinction between that which is temporary and for a time, and that which is eternal and by the promise. If there's any confusion in your mind as a Christian, what should we do with the Old Covenant law, Old Testament law? I mean, I assume you're not stressing out about that because I'm, I'm, I assume that you've eaten pork. I assume that you've eaten shellfish. Um, and so you, you don't keep the Old Covenant law. But lest there be any confusion in your mind about what a relationship to the law should be, it's this. Cast out the slave woman and her son. That's not to say that the law was not good and right and helpful and true. It's to say it had a temporary function. 
If you're having trouble believing what I tell you, read Galatians and Romans. And I, I believe you'll, you'll come to this conclusion as well. Um, one, one scholar says that the Old Testament law is like the cocoon of God's promises. I like that picture. You ever see a cocoon that a caterpillar wraps itself in? So it's there for a time until the promise incubates, until the caterpillar grows and becomes a butterfly. But once it becomes a butterfly, the cocoon is no longer needed. This is the new covenant. This is how it works with redemptive history. The old covenant cocooned the promises of God until they took flight in Jesus Christ. Um, so that, our relationship to the Old Covenant law, yes, you can see the heart of God in it. Yes, you can see a lot about who God is, but, and yes, it points us to a Savior, but what we follow is not the Old Covenant law. We follow the law of Christ through the, through the power of the Holy Spirit. What is the law of Christ? You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. It can be summed up in those two things. How do you do it? You don't do it by looking to the law. You do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. So God has changed an external law, and he has transformed it into an internal power through the Holy Spirit to do what God has always wanted us to do. That is why the Apostle Paul says, you don't want to live according to the flesh? Verse 5. He didn't say, well, look to the Old Covenant law. He says, walk by the Spirit, and you shall not gratify the desires of the flesh. So that's number one. What you do with the Old Covenant law is, yes, you see God's marvelous, redemptive plans throughout history unfolding, but you, don't, you do not look to it to follow God. You look to Christ to follow God through the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, who are the people of God is another question that comes up when we talk about Old Covenant, New Covenant. The people of God, as I think you can clearly see here, are not necessarily Abraham's offspring. Not necessarily Abraham's biological offspring, but his spiritual offspring. Romans 9, 9 through 8. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But as the scripture says, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but it is children of the promise who are counted as offspring. And so a true Jew is one who has, had received the promise, the promised new covenant, which takes form in Christ dying for our sins, rising again, and sending us the Holy Spirit. Romans 2, 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely a Jew outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Holy Spirit, not the letter. So do you see this? The people of God are not those who are biologically related to Abraham. 
The people of God are those who have trusted in Christ. And when you trust in Christ, you are given the Holy Spirit. The, that, this is the doctrine of regeneration. And the Holy Spirit, it is an invasion of heaven into the human soul. It's the life of God in the soul of man. It is a supernatural force, power, and entity within you with whom you must keep in step with if you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So, I, I'd love to go on there, but I want to move on with the text. So understand that there is a difference between the natural and the spiritual. The Old Covenant law is the natural in this analogy. The spiritual is Christ and the Holy Spirit and the New Covenant. That's what's eternal and that's what remains. Now, it's, it might seem harsh for God. Again, it might seem cruel for God to cast out Hagar into the wilderness where it's dry, where it's hot, where there is no water, where it gets very cold at night, where there's animals who, are, who could attack you. But remember, if we see anything from this scene here, that God is near to the brokenhearted. Yes, there is a difference between the natural and the spiritual. But God is near to the brokenhearted. Um, verse 14. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder and along with the child and sent them away. And she wandered in the wilderness. And when the water was gone, running out of water in the desert is not good. She put a child, she put the child under one of the bushes. And then she went off about the distance of a bow shot. And she said, let me not look on the death of a child. And she lifted up her voice and wept. Can you imagine, do you love your kids? Do you, does your heart, is your heart knit to them? Do you, do you cry and struggle when they struggle? Is it almost like there's an attachment? Imagine having your child out in the hot desert, being banished from her father, by her father, and he is dying and crying because he has no water, and she goes a distance about a bow shot because she doesn't want to even hear the child cry and see him die. That is a very, very tough situation to be put in. But she is put in that situation. And it's at that very point that God comes to her. Verse 17. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you? Fear not. For God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand. For I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes. And she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave it to the boy. Notice that it is at the point of her desperation, at the point of 
perhaps her greatest and most intense sorrow that God meets her. Note this about the Christian life, and I'm learning this myself, is that the place where God will begin in your life is the place where you end. That is why Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the meek. Those people are in a fortunate condition because they, they need what only God can give. That's a very fortunate condition to be. It's when you are emptied of self. That's where God will work within you. I was just talking to John about this. And Gary, humility. God works through the humble people to bring about these things because they're not lifting themselves up, trying to seem significant in the eyes of others. But a humble person is somebody who does the will of God, has died to self, died to self, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up, his take up his cross and follow me. That means abandon your project for self-glory. Abandon the, abandon the project of pride. Abandon the pursuit of significance. And follow Christ. And make him the ultimate point of reference for our life. That is somebody that God will use. And that's who I strive to be. Um, God opened her eyes to see life-giving water. And I'll end with this. Having went through this passage, God is near to the brokenhearted. And so, yes, I want to say that there is a definite distinction between the promised children and the children of the flesh. However, lest we be too militant about saying, well, we're the promised children of God, don't forget who went down justified. The Pharisee, who said, thank God that I fast three times a week, or the one who beat his breast and said, have mercy upon me, a sinner. That man went down justified. It's being in a helpless state that God works within you. And then God will bring you to what is life-giving. He will show you living water. And that means he will point you to Christ. In John 7, 37, Jesus says, it says, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow streams of living water. Now get this in verse 39 to tie everything I've said together. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. This is the new covenant promise. It is to have the Holy Spirit, i.e. it is to have God within you because of Jesus Christ. And so the living water that you see in this passage should be identified typologically with Christ being the one who pours out eternal living water into our souls, implanting within us the Holy Spirit to will and to work for God's good pleasure on into eternity. Amen?
God's promises will come, but they will take a long time. God's promises will come, but it won't be through natural means. It will only be through spiritual means. God's promise has come in Jesus Christ and implanted to us the Holy Spirit. And now we wait for the ultimate fulfillment of God's redemptive plan, the second coming, while we obey him. Let's close in a word of prayer.